0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Joe, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI.
1: Hi, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, it's great to have you on the show. You reached out, I believe, following, uh, maybe an article or something I wrote up in my newsletter on the healthcare space and my interest in further exploring it and offered to help out. Um, so I'm really glad to have you on the show and why don't you Start by telling us a little bit about uh, what you're doing at uh, NHS and, and your background and kind of how you got involved in applying ML and AI in healthcare.
1: Well, you know, one of the things about coming on your show is it makes you actually look back and, and realize where you've come from. I uh, myself, I'm an engineer by first discipline, mm. and I joined the Atomic Energy Authority doing probabilistic risk assessment back in the 85. So, I have 28 years in this particular field. And uh, then moved to the Advanced Robotics Research Lab at the University of Salford doing VR and telepresence. But uh, then moved out of that um, into commercial due diligence in the tech space, looking at supply chains and modeling for banks and VCs. But got back into machine learning, making things back in 2006, looking at uh, computer vision Based classifiers for emotion recognition, effective computing type things. And for the past two and a half years, I've been embedded with an organisation called NHS Digital, which is part of the UK National Health Service, and um, been looking at technologies that it can adopt, but more of late, uh, part of an organisation called Code for Health. And it um, its primary role is to work with clinicians, find out what they need make some open source software and tools that they can use. And it's, it's obviously the best thing I've ever done in my life. I'm really enjoying it. The the clinicians are fabulous people, and it's nice to be able to help them in that space.
0: Oh, that sounds great. Uh, you mentioned you've been working on emotion recognition. Is that something that you're applying in the healthcare context?
1: Well, yes. Um, it's important to actually consider, uh, well, one of the things I've been looking at for the past Two years is the subjects of mental health and how that can be assisted by uh, technologies, so chatbots, etc. Um, and you can overlay effective computing type technologies in that domain. So for example, a cl- clinical issue that exists is how do you actually triage people effectively when the demand for services is so high? And the, a clinician approached me, a fabulous gentleman by the name of James Woolard, who's the CAMS at child and adolescent mental health, uh, a clinician psychiatrist. And he wanted to know, is it possible to do what's called um, PHQ-9, GAD-7, which are sort of scoring mechanisms for looking at mental health in a chatbot environment. So we built a, a, a tool which you could consider, which looks at scoring those um, triage processes. But overlaying on top of that, Effective computing, so analyzing emotion in text, NLP to look at suicidal ideation words, and and expanding on the current models that exist, which are usually just numerical question and answer type things, where you get a rating, but going into dialogue. Because um, I think the future does probably lie in augmenting services using these types of technologies.
0: Has that project gone into production use? Is it live and uh, are patients interacting with it? It's currently out with clinicians and the supply
1: chain that could potentially use it. Obviously, it's it's an open source piece of software, so anybody can use it. But there are existing providers for uh, mental health services and uh, triage in Britain. And we're saying to them, look, here it is. Play with it. Use it. Test it. And if you find it of value, here's the code. Fill your boots. Crack on. But obviously, nice. it would need to go through um, some rigorous testing, not least because it would be a change of clinical practice. And uh, so I think it's early days. I think it'd be fair to say it's very early days.
0: Uh, you said it's, it's open source. Are the, the models that you're using open source as well, or just the chatbot platform itself?
1: Uh, everything. The code, um, the manual, uh, everything is open source. Okay. The, the of code for health is to actually produce things that people can use quickly, where there's no license agreements, etc. So it's it's a it's great. I feel a little bit like Father Christmas. A clinician comes to me and says, "Can I can I do this?" And what's the art of what's possible? And and I can show them. So it's great to build things in the NHS.
0: Just prior, you mentioned uh, or alluded to the process of bringing new products projects to market in the healthcare sphere um maybe it's worth taking a step back and kind of starting there and having you talk a little bit about your experiences with machine learning and ai in general uh at nhs and and at in healthcare and getting projects out to clients
1: okay well i i think um like most engineers, you think you can solve problems, and you go ahead and solve problems. I think one of the things that a big learning point I have come across is asking the question: How wrong can you afford to be? Because this this is an environment that's a bit like my early days in the eighties when we're talking about nuclear power stations. You cannot afford to, to be wrong, right? Um, and the degree to which you could be wrong needs to be understood by both the person designing the system and also the person requesting the system. And I think most people don't, if I were set to be a broad generalization, most clinicians do not actually ask that question of themselves before they consider using machine learning and AI. So that's sort of the first thing I've, I've learned. And one of the things I'm very keen that people start to do is to recognize that, look, how wrong can you afford to be? So let me give you an example. We have a, a system by which we uh, dispatch ambulances and medication and services in Britain. Uh, You could look at that and you could optimise the questions because that's an existing system that is an expert system. You could put a Bayesian ranking system in there. Uh, You could optimise that, ask fewer questions, but chances are not, because you're asking fewer questions, you might get it wrong. So 80% of the time, you might get it right. 20% of the time, you might get it wrong. The risk associated with that is significant because Mm -hmm. the 20% of the time you don't get it right, that might be an ambulance. So there are certain situations where there are, uh, highly critical situations, uh, for health that you, I think machine learning isn't appropriate for. But early stage t- triage for uh, low risk areas, I think it is appropriate for. But when you're building these things, the, the challenge always is how do you get a hold of data to be able to build them? And I think there's a, a misconception that because the NHS has 1.7 million people in it and it's fourth largest organization in the world, but it is uh, one discrete organization and one discrete set of data sets. And in some cases, that's true with public health data, etc. But most of the time, they sit within um, fairly siloed groups of, of uh, NHS practices across Britain. So it's very difficult for me as a as a machine learning practitioner to say, uh, OK, you, as in your trusts, will you please show your data with me, personally identifiable data? It just isn't going to happen. So I think the key skill for for myself and people who will follow on from me will be to actually get some skill base at a local level, embedded at a local level, so that people can build uh, classifiers and prediction mechanisms that can be used locally, built locally, within the boundaries and the firewall of a particular trust. Now, the only other option is to try and agglomerate all that data together, and, and Wales has been fairly successful at that with the. Uh, a a group of organisations providing details to Swansea University so on a national Welsh scale, but I think one of the challenges I I think I'm going to look at probably from May onwards is the subject of federated machine learning, because Mm. there's a better chance, I think, of that being used. And by federated, it means different things to different people, but by, by federated machine learning, I mean let's build models, let's build models external to the NHS, and apply them locally and just get the gradient descent or just get the error back. Let's see what these the, these things work. So we're not actually looking at personal data. We're not actually looking at anything relating to anything that could define a person in, in the real world, but just looking for the success or not of the models. I think there's a better chance of being able to deploy
0: models in that sort of environment, but it's early days. Do you have... A taxonomy of sorts or mental model for the different application areas within healthcare broadly or the NHS of ML and AI?
1: I think within like an organization this size, you wouldn't be surprised to find out that it sits within text. It sits within images and to a lesser degree, it sits within video. Um, but it's primarily text and images. So, for example, if you wanted to do some analysis of drug use and drug use effect, it's very difficult for you to do anything other than natural language assessment on text within a health record system. And the taxonomies associated with, uh, doing that sort of analysis that you might expect to see, like ICD-10, UMILS, uh, SNOMED are not, um, the sort of th- the ways in which people classify a diagnosis just don't exist in these um, systems. They are just free tech systems. So people are busying themselves developing um, annotation mechanisms to understand for a particular medication, these are the, the, the likely ways in which a clinician will express those. And running uh, those algorithms to understand the effect of drugs and the effect of t- treatments, um, particularly in mental health. And about in London, they're doing some success in that area using products like GATE and to a lesser degree, glove as in the natural language uh, tools. Um, okay. But within the realms of images, uh, it's very difficult because most images have also got embedded in them tools, uh, uh, techniques for maintaining uh, personally identifiable data. So an x ray will have identifiable data in it. So we've been busying ourselves over the past three months looking at ways in which we can um, allow people to uh, label data. Without actually, um, so say we had a physiotherapist who wanted to create some label data sets for shoulder impingement. It'd be very difficult for them to create that data set. Um, if you don't give them, say, web-based or uh, mobile-based tools by which they can take pictures, label the data and give that to, in a controlled environment to the people who could produce the algorithms. So yeah, labeling of data and producing data that you can use for machine learning is one of the biggest challenges I think that we have. And it's not going to go away, primarily because we are a very disparate organization.
0: So it sounds like you you kind of think of things in terms of the the media type, if you will, text versus images versus video. Uh, I'm curious, even at a higher level, there are we could probably rattle off the different types of applications. But there, you've you've talked about diagnostic applications. You've talked about with the ambulances, like the efficiency types of applications. I was just curious what other broad categories of applications there might exist. I imagine, you know, I, I say sometimes look at an org chart and you can figure out where you can apply it. <laughs> the same thing applies at, at the NHS, um, in terms of HR and, and lots of other types of applications. Um I
1: think we we need to be realistic and um, the Doing machine learning and AI on clinical subject. I would I'd break it up into two areas. What is clinical and what's process? If you look at it just as mm-hmm. process and people, we're no different from any other organization in, in the world, Some, somewhat bigger. Mm-hmm. So there are ways in which you can do process improvement, whether that's booking people onto or um, treatment plans, booking people into hospitals, and... Um, waiting list management, that type of thing, these are sort of the sort of bread and butter you would expect machine learning solutions to be uh, well made for. And there's not little or no clinical risk associated with some of those. Uh, Right, right. But when you start to look at clinical applications, you come across one thing that is probably unique to healthcare, which is the subject of a healthcare pathway. So for every form of treatment there will be a healthcare pathway which will say you do this by this, do this, do this, do this, this, this. And this will be um under what's called the NICE guidelines. So it's the equivalent of a HIPAA compliance, etc. You would have in the okay. states. And some of those processes, if they're in a pathway, you could augment. So if we take the subject of, of mental health, you could augment the the process of um triaging by getting better data to people more quickly. And that's important because uh, like, not unlike other uh, conditions, the sooner you treat somebody, the better it's going to be. So uh, gathering data and analysing data and scoring that data more efficiently to help a clinician understand who they should see is much better than what currently exists in some areas of mental health, which is you get a questionnaire. So if you're Uh, A paper questionnaire, in some cases. So if you've got a a condition, they will they will meet you, and they'll ask you to rate how you feel on certain subjects. That paper questionnaire, you will see, and then maybe two weeks later, you have to fill it in again, the data gets lost. And that's just not the way to work. So you can imagine in a chatbot environment, you can capture that data. The person doesn't have to be there to actually uh, gather that data. And they can control that data and share that data as and when they see fit. So it doesn't. Match. It could be a system that sits on a mobile phone, which they control their use of. And it may not necessarily go to the NHS unless the person specifically wants it to do. So these sort of solutions, the, the, the triage and making better decisions about what to do next at the early start stages of a, uh, a diagnosis is worthwhile. It's very difficult to suggest. Um, Alternatives. Uh, one of the key and the most successful bits about being involved with Code for Health is the clinicians involved from the onset, and I think that's critical for anybody wishing to bring systems into into any healthcare system. Anything that's going to affect the current clinical practice should be designed with clinicians, not presented to them as a, a solution for increasing efficiency, which I've seen done. Um, and also, if you're yep. going to use some some. Machine learning terms, you know, tailor it back a bit and explain exactly what these things do because people need to understand specifically because of GDPR, how these things work. And it's clinicians at the end of the day that will want to either use it or not or refer it or not. Right. So it's, it's how you, how you design, how you co-design a product is the most important thing. And being close to clinicians is. And clinical practice, wherever you are in the world, I think is the is a key thing if you want to do useful things in machine learning. That's why it's such a good thing to be embedded in the NHS, although I, it's like two and a half days a week and the rest of the time I'm an expert of creed. Just working with people, working with clinicians is a, is a wonderful thing because you know you can remove some of the pain of doing practice uh, by optimising it and, and augmenting it, Um and that, maybe that's another subject that's worth discussing. It's the subject of what is AI to most people? The conversations around what is AI and is it going to remove jobs, et cetera, is just prevalent in the press. If I see another discussion uh, with a, a look of a humanoid robot in it, I think I'm going to scream. <laughs> it drives me potty. It's just it doesn't help people to understand that really what are we looking at here? We're looking at maths, stats, and computers and they are right. programmed to do things or not by humans and they can be used to augment practice in a clever way by doing predictions and classifications faster than some people can do it's not going to remove jobs i know i don't believe it was going to move, remove jobs in in healthcare and it neither should it because you know unless we get um systems that are good at socratic dialogue um listening better responding better very quickly and i don't see that happening at the moment uh, I think we're safe to say that clinicians are safe.
0: Mm. I can certainly see it changing a lot of jobs. Yeah, right. If, uh,
1: hopefully for the better.
0: Uh, one would hope, uh, both from the patient perspective as well as the worker perspective.
1: Yeah, I mean, the National Health Service is about making people better. It isn't about keeping people well, although I think increasingly people are thinking like that. Uh, So Public Health England does exist, and there are various initiatives to keep people well. But I think in economies like ours that are are very densely populated regions, um, we need to think more about how can we build AI systems that keep people well.
0: That's become a pretty popular topic here, uh, the whole population health management idea. Mm. Um, I don't know that we're... Necessarily any further ahead than the NHS is. Um, I'm certainly far from an expert in, in that, but uh, it's a topic that comes up quite a bit when talking about kind of healthcare directions. Yeah, I, I think
1: if we look at what we have in our phones in terms of technology, it's wholly believable. And in my experience, we I mean, we built emotion classifiers that can sit and are wholly powered by. that's not within ex, within the NHS, but within expert degree, we build emotion classifiers that can sit in a phone and passively understand your emotional state and put it in a, in a diary that you could subsequently review so using computer vision technologies. So that sort of thing could exist and could that could enable me to reflect about what makes me happy and what makes me sad. And therefore, I could, with the right tools that might be a chatbot, might give me some ideas as to the way in which I can improve my behaviour to make me more resilient. These sort of things... Can be encompassed within our day-to-day lives if they if somebody wants to do that. And I know, I mean, there's quite a lot of resilience apps coming out, uh, resilience technologies, monitoring, sensing technologies that exist. Um, but behaviour change at a population level isn't just about the technology; it's about a country's willingness and often society's willingness to to be assisted. And we've got to trust. The thing that's assisting us. So if if you've got a phone that's saying, "Look, Joe, you've not been happy. You've been grumpy for a couple of days now. What what, what do you think is causing that, and what do you think you could improve that?" Now, if I if my phone did that, which it could do, you know, I built a <laughs> bot that actually <laughs> does that. Um, now I built it, so I know it works. But if I had had, had that given to me. And I didn't involve, wasn't involved in the process, didn't know it would work, didn't know what its purpose would be. I might feel like, you know, what is this thing? It's an issue of trust. How do you trust AI? Well, you can only trust it if you're involved in the process of its design. And I think um most people are designing tech without including people in the process a lot of the times because the tech just, just doesn't get used. So population level behavior change does require i think societies and i think it's incumbent on health services to say look we want to we want to move our country in this direction that might be mental health etc uh let's do this and these are the tools and techniques we're going to use on that and that requires governments to want to do that as well but also requires people to feel comfortable with the tech and i think that's my concern at the moment is that there's too much rubbish being talked about machine learning and making it frightening when in fact it, it isn't.
0: You you mentioned previously and now just the, the, the notion of centering this process around the clinician. What has to happen to fully enable that, right? You know, you said machine learning is math, stats and computers. Clinicians are typically focused elsewhere, right? Mm. What, what, do they need to, do we need to turn our clinicians into mathematicians, statistics, statisticians and, uh, computer geeks? Or <laughs> have you come across some, uh, some interesting ways to pull clinicians into the process? Uh, and, and do you have any hints at ways to do that at scale? So, so let's say.
1: Um, a group of people in the NHS want to. A group of clinicians are, are wedded to the idea of doing changing customer practice within um, after a, a clinical risk assessment of system, and let's call it chatbot for, for just because we've been talking a little bit about that. If they wanted to deploy that, the next challenge for not for me because within Code for help we just give it away. But the next challenge is if you're not doing what I'm doing, which is giving away things for free to the NHS, is Who's going to buy these products? Because it won't be the clinician. The clinician Mm. may specify that they they should be used. And therein lies the other challenging issue is that within um, health boards or within uh, NHS trusts, there are purchasing processes, uh, typically three to five-year contractual process that you you'd need to go through to get that through the door. Right. So getting it specified is one thing. Getting it passed... Uh, Nice in compliance with NICE guidelines and in compliance with clinical guidelines is another thing. So that might take you two years. You then have to wait or you have to create a process for which that process, that product is subsequently specified and purchased. That might take you another three years. And I know very few SMEs, very few SMEs and not many large companies for particular technologies who have both the cash or the predilection to want to Wait around for those types of proce- uh, those types of processes to go through hmm. um, It's not easy and quite rightly it's not easy to to implement technology in healthcare but once you're in the people who do it uh, stay there and and the, but I have a slight problem with the fact that once they're in they don't often innovate <laughs> <laughs> uh, they get there they don't they don't make any changes so customer practice, clinical need changes. The systems don't change with it. And that's why, and that actually causes uh, uh, the thing that we have in the NHS, which clinicians will want innovation and they will subsequently make it happen because they're not happy with what they've currently got. Hmm. So that's a, that's a strange cycle. I don't think it can, it can be that unusual for other large organizations, particularly public sector organizations. It must be quite common, I would have thought.
0: That actually calls to mind a lot of what you see on the Traditional enterprise side as well. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, take for example the the evolution of cloud computing. Right. A lot of that came out of pent up frustration in being able to get infrastructure through the traditional procurement process and mm-hmm. the IT processes. So you'd have what they call this whole shadow IT, and it makes me wonder if there's if there are kind of a shadow healthcare type of thing arising where individual clinicians or groups are looking outside of these traditional structures? Or is the bureaucracy, if we can call it that, is it is it so strong so that that's less possible in healthcare?
1: You've got to bear in mind, whilst I've been a beneficiary of the NHS for 55 years, I've only been within its walls uh, for two and a half. But I mm. would have to say that an outsider looking in, what you've said is is a fair representation of customer practice.
0: So we've talked about some of the clinical challenges, and along the way, you've mentioned GDPR. Uh, do you have any <laughs> any particular insights into how that plays out, either generally or within the healthcare confines?
1: Uh, very much so. Yeah, I mean, I've been pondering on the subject of GDPR since I came in through the door of the NHS. Uh, not least because uh, it directly impacts on black box algorithms. Uh, which uh, I'm particularly fond. So it's very difficult. (laughs) Um, It's very difficult for me, uh, and I would say difficult, I'd say impossible, for me to recommend the use of a black box algorithm. And I don't have a problem doing that in some cases because we both know that majority of problems can be solved with, you know, uh, logistical regression, X boosts. You know, you're going to get very good responses on your data set by using things that
0: people can understand. Um, but and you, you seem to have accepted the the labeling of black box um, to describe uh, deep learning where I've come to to refer to it as, you know, opaque as opposed to black box. Hmm. It's like, it's hard to see, but you know, you can see some things. Oh, of course. Um, I mean, you can
1: apply models on the outputs of a, a deep learning model and, Create an approximation of how it's created, like a decision tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can throw lots of data at a deep learning model and look at the outputs and explain them. But the, this, the worst case scenario, from my perspective, uh, and maybe becomes because you know, of the background I come from, looking at probabilistic risk assessment type stuff, is this: um, I have an algorithm, and it dispatches an ambulance to you, or it doesn't. Let's say it doesn't. Mm-hmm. You die your family have a right to understand what happened. So let's say uh, the, the process by which that happened involved, in some cases, a, a black box algorithm, an opaque algorithm of some <laughs> form. And you say to me, okay, well, Joe, well, uh, you obviously made that decision based on this algorithm. How did it work? Now, under GDPR, because of the issue associated with algorithmic responsibility, I have a legal requirement There is a legal requirement on me, if I was the designer of that system, or indeed the user of that system, to explain that to you. It has not yet been tested in law as to the degree to which that explanation will be acceptable. So, uh, the current process is that all such algorithms will have a person in the loop. But let's face it, you can put a person in the loop, the degree to which that person made that decision and the degree to which that algorithm made the decision isn't always clear. Knit, knit, a couple of those together, and um, you might have an excellent explanation for the way in which uh, a call was handled. For example, you might have some uh, gap in speech type technology which would understand that that call was handled very well, and then you might have some technologies which will take you through a questionnaire that will dispatch an ambulance. One might, the first one might be a black box algorithm or an opaque algorithm. The other one might be a, a, an expert system. What actually was played the greatest influence in that decision to dispatch the ambulance? Was it that the, the system said, I handled the call effectively and asked all the questions correctly? Or was it the um, decision tree that I went through? It would be very hard to say the two things are not linked. And if the former doesn't have a very good explanation that you understand... It's quite a large financial hit. I mean, it's twenty million euros potentially per instance of not being able to explain an algorithm. Hmm. Now, I don't know any SMEs in the world that are prepared to take that degree of risk, right? Um, and that, you know, in practicality's terms, that wouldn't happen. Okay, I don't, I don't see that happening, but it's not been tested, mm-hmm. so it's very difficult for me to suggest the widespread use of opaque algorithms because of this issue. Mm-hmm. Now, even though I know in some cases, some specific ones, that, that the algorithm may be more accurate and have less risk associated with it. But if I can't explain it, you know, where do I go with that? So it's been, I completely understand GDPR. I, I think we have to comply with it. We have no choice. It, we need to be able to, exp- if we want trust in machine learning, we need to be able to explain things well. So I've been showing a lot of you know those people running uh, well since the days of Lyme, You know when Lyme was originally how many years has that been around now? Two. It's been a couple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So people, uh, if if somebody were able to solve the problem of under- explaining how that works in a manner that would be acceptable to a member of the public who was affected by it, I'd be a very happy man mm-hmm. because I think mm-hmm. these have a very imp- these algorithms have a very important role for just speeding up the process by which we learn about things, mm-hmm. not not necessarily just doing things, how we learn about things. Do you have any views as to where they, I mean, and obviously this typically is something you know, where you ask very useful questions of the a person that you're interviewing and they hopefully come up with decent responses, but I'm sitting here left scratching my head as to the best way to go with um, deep learning algorithms in terms of the explanation of them. I, given this, this this podcast may be listened to by people in healthcare, what techniques do you think we should be considering in healthcare? That because let's face it, you are one of the few people in the world that goes out and speaks to the leading people in the area of machine learning and AI. So I and I I, I guess from the nature in which you ask questions, you are also an avid reader of papers, and you understand how things are coded. Do you have any idea as to what sort of things we should be considering?
0: I think the, the way I think of the, the explaining deep learning landscape is that there are a couple of broad camps. Um, you know, there's one broad camp that is basically try to fit some explainable model to the output of your opaque model. Mm -hmm. Um, and you've mentioned and acknowledged that, that camp. And the other is, um, you know, try to gain some insight into, uh, what individual neurons are doing, um, you know, by introspecting, you know, weights and things that are happening in the network. And that, I think that's a step towards explaining, but it's not quite, I don't think it, it produces anything yet that necessarily uh, meets, meets the bar of explainability. I think it's, that's more providing insight so there have been a couple of, uh, I've had a couple of conversations with folks that are, that are, you know, offering software tools that aim to one way or another provide the, the user who's deploying these tools with a dial that lets them dial in explainability when needed, presumably at the cost of model performance. Yeah. Um, but in a case where, you know, like at the, uh, the NHS, then that dial will be, will be pinned all the way to one end, right? Yeah. Uh, and then I think you're, you're back to, you know, these two types of approaches and the, the various methods of training, uh, like a decision tree or something like that, uh, against a more opaque model is what I've heard the most of happening, uh, in real life.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I'd love it to happen. But I think the other challenge we've got is when you string a number of them together, you know, who takes responsibility for the decisions that each one of them have made? That's an interesting thing in itself. Um mm-hmm. And if you've got a dial, how many dials can you afford to be bothered to press whilst you're waiting for an ambulance? So yeah, it's a big issue. Um I think time will tell as to whether GDPR had a positive or negative effect on healthcare AI. At the current time, I think we need to spend more time explaining what we're doing and making less of a bogeyman. So mm-hmm. maybe slowing things down as it is doing is a good thing. So I'm, maybe I'm being slightly pragmatic and thinking on the positive, but I think that wouldn't be a bad thing. And there are plenty of ways in which organisations can make money with deep learning algorithms. It doesn't have to be in healthcare. I think the challenge, however, when it comes when you don't apply uh, opaque algorithms to... Um, problems that are just intractable with any other way. So we're talking about computer vision-type problems. Mm-hmm. So looking at a label uh, data set for, say, glaucoma images, which is what I'm going to be doing next month, and building an algorithm that could identify, um, say, features of um, those particular images that might help somebody understand whether glaucoma is early onset of glaucoma is happening, I think the people who would like me to do it need to understand you can't do it any other way than with some form of opaque algorithm. And therefore the ramifications are going to be, it needs to be one where it's a very low risk. How far, how wrong can we afford to be on this particular subject? I think that's anybody applying AI in this sector needs to think about that first. And I don't know enough about the subject uh as as I, I'm expecting to be uh, in May when I get briefed by the clinician. But that's the first question I'm going to ask is how wrong can we afford to be?
0: Yeah, there's a, a podcast I did recently with Ryan Poplin who's a research scientist or research engineer at Google who worked on looking at, uh, at retinal fundus images and um, trying to predict I think it was diabetes in his case mm. and his research ended up focusing on identifying potential uh, risk factors. In other words, inferring demographic information from the retinal scans, um, like uh, age and... Yes, I remember uh, that interview. Yes. Right, right. He, he, so he looked
1: was... at a whole bunch of data sets and came up with inferences about the nature of the person that didn't relate to the condition that they were looking for.
0: That's right. And so in that interview, there was there was an interesting tidbit about how his kind of grappling with this explainability issue in the context of being able to go back and validate these results with with the clinicians. And, you know, what he suggested was that, you know, you've got uh, in your kind of deep neural network model, you've got this layer at the end that says, you know, yes or no, or makes a prediction of some sort. Um, But the roughest level, it sounds like what they were able to do is kind of push back a layer and uh, maybe train a layer on identifying features that are kind of known contributors to a particular condition. And, you know, it does strike me that, you know, maybe... That might help us, you know, still use these opaque algorithms, but oh, pass the explainability test, I, right? The algorithm's not making the decision. Yeah. It's just provide, it's augmenting the intelligence of the clinician.
1: I think that, I think therein lies a, an interesting and probably important factor that we need to consider is that it's different doing healthcare research than implementing systems that augment practice. So I'm particularly focused on uh, implementing systems that can augment practice. Mm-hmm. The use of deep learning, um, systems or any opaque algorithms that can improve people's understanding of causation of illness is wholly appropriate. Uh, the difficulty comes as to when somebody needs to understand why they, that came to that dis- discussion. But I think it opens up uh, identifying feature sets that people, clinicians need to consider in more detail, as that one did, is highly appropriate for healthcare research. And and should be con, uh, considered, but um, because it wouldn't be implemented in. in, in a, I don't know if this, this particular algorithm is going to be used for. Was it diabetic myopathy?
0: Uh, like it? I believe. I believe so. Um, I'm not sure I got that the, term right. But, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> it, it, in <laughs> to, essence, to, the change
1: in the eye when when diabetes becomes evident, blindness. Right. Often. Um, uh,
0: to maybe to be more concrete about it, to. Um, you know make up some terminology and apply it to this example, but uh intuitively, there's a big difference between using an opaque algorithm to determine whether I have you know this diabetic condition based on an eye image
1: mm-hmm.
0: and using an ensemble, let's say of opaque algorithms to identify or maybe a single opaque algorithm to identify features that may be difficult for me as a clinician to identify or time consuming. But to kind of raise the flags and say, well, you know, there's this kind of vein structure, there are these kind of spots, there's this kind of coloration. So, this is a candidate that should be explored more fully by the clinician. And so, I, I think the point I'm trying to make is maybe don't throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing here, right? Don't, yeah. you know, there's still potential value in these opaque algorithms, but it's really where potentially where the decision is being made. Awesome, awesome. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been great. It's been it's been awesome. Well, thank you very much. I've
1: really enjoyed it, and keep up the good work. And you're a very good communicator in the area of machine learning. And um, if I had my way, lots of people in the NHS will be listening to this podcast—not to me, but to what you do on a regular basis.
0: Well, I really appreciate that. No worries. Uh, True. Enjoy your weekend. You too. Have a good one. Alright everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Joe or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to twimlai.com slash talk slash one sixty-nine. If you're a fan of the pod, we'd like to encourage you to head over to your Apple or Google Podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a review. They're super helpful as we push to grow this show and community. As always, Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.